Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Morning, Al. All right, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. And welcome all to My Life, My Music with the Governor, Alan Hudson, as we take a trip down memory lane through chapter and verse. And by the way, part 12 now, Al. It's incredible, isn't it? I don't I don't feel that old, Paul, to tell the truth. <laughs> well, neither of us do. And on a beautiful Sunday morning like this, I'm looking over the Worcestershire countryside from my bedroom window and all looks well in the world. Yeah, yeah, it shows you how uh, deceiving that can be, doesn't it? Absolutely. First, yeah. look, first of all, what we've been doing recently on our podcast is looking at a, a photograph that you've posted, and that po- that behind the lens photograph this month is the one with you and the Kaiser Franz Beckenbauer. You giving him the bad finger and saying, "Come and get it if you want it." Yeah, yeah, um, that was on the, one of my better nights, uh, um, one of my better days at Wembley. I only played at Wembley a, a handful of times, but that was a that was a good one, and uh, if it was it was worth uh, not having the other good days just to prove uh, a couple of people wrong. It must have been one of the mo- most magnificent England debuts of all time. Yeah, it's been rated. A lot A lot yeah. of people say, well, it was a friendly and it wasn't a World Cup and not all that, but I, I don't believe... Uh, I think you've got... A, it, it wasn't that for me. It was um, it was bigger than a World Cup match mm. for me because uh, the pressure was on. You know, I'd been... Um, I'd been banned for three years by the other manager, Ramsey. I'd uh, been out in the cold and uh, never looked like I was going to... Actually, my love for playing for England had gone. Uh um, they kind of turned me off. The people at the FA and management turned me off of it, and uh, I was fortunate enough, really, that uh, I had moved to Stoke and rediscovered my form, and through uh, through you know who. So um, I went into that match full of, you know, just full, so full of confidence. It was incredible, you know. I I obviously didn't know I was going to play when I turned up. Uh, at the HQ, you know, on the on the Sunday morning, uh, but I found out pretty quickly. I played so well on the Saturday uh, against Manchester City. We beat them four nil, and I, I had a hand in most of the goals. And um, I I really, you know, if he hadn't, I I had a feeling that he was saving me for the for the West Germans, who were world champions, and because he he had an opportunity to pick me a couple of matches before, and I I got a feeling that he said to his Sidekick uh, Les Cocker that will save him for the big one, and and then we can get rid of him. And not just a hand in the goals against Manchester City, that wonderful goal that you scored when you took the throw in, balls nonchalantly 
come to you with that shoulder and you've took it, you've took the throw, come inside, scored a magnificent goal. And uh, you referenced uh, Ramsey, which is a, a link to Ipswich, and it was 50 years to the day that you scored your uh, your ghost goal against Ipswich down at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, they, they, well, I call it the goal that never, they call it the goal that never was, but it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, the old adage that we used to use, read the papers in the morning. Uh, but um, it's I, I I laugh at that. I've always laughed at that goal. And uh, but what intrigues me more than anything is that how our refereeing has not improved since. Um, you know, because uh, funnily enough, I just got uh, something from Jason Pettigrove asking the same question. Mm-hmm. What you what you, what do you recall about it? And all I recall about it, really, I don't, I don't think much about the goal at the time because I think it was laughable. Uh, and, and that's um, nothing's changed since then, even to the extent of the ridiculous VAR today. Uh, they used to make excuses for referees and linesmen and officials that um, they were amateurs in a professional game and that was always their get out. But that isn't the case today. They're, they're professional people. They train. They get very well paid and they shouldn't be making such uh, mistakes. And now they're, they use it. They're, they give the referees another excuse now with the VAR to make silly decisions. And uh, the, the VAR is actually t- taking the game backwards which again links us nicely to your latest project with Shanksy and Sits, that you're doing a football podcast, uncensored football podcast, with a live audience, I believe, or do, and in a casino. So can you tell us more about that? And guys, if you do want to see more, and you will want to see more, check out Alan's uh, official Twitter account, which is Alan Hudson underscore 10, or Al's... A Facebook page because all the information and everything Udi's done from the beginning to now is on there. So far away, sir. Yeah, well, we, um, I uh, wasn't aware of John Sitton. Um, I've heard of the name. I knew he played for Chelsea because when he played for Chelsea, I, I think uh, he might have been a kid there um, coming through. And he's told me very much in the week that I've known him or 10 days I've known him, he's. Uh, he's, I know more about him than probably knows about himself, because which he's already told me. Um, uh, he's a he's, he's he's a larger in life character. Don likes him. I like him. We set out to do this on our own and um, heard about this fellow, and he come along. And we're trying to help. We're trying we're trying to do something on top of it. How it all came about is John's a a black cab driver, and we're trying to get the black help the black cab drivers get back on track. Uh, having lost their way through the state of the country mm. um, because, you know, as I say to to anyone, you know, whenever you used to come through London airport, whatever, the first thing you see when you come out of the airport was a row of cab, black cabs. They, they represent our country and it's, it's you know, we can knock them all, all we like. Um, you know, there's good and bad in every every society. Uh, we can knock them for sometimes, you know, running their meters up and things like this. But at the end of the day, you know, they're part of our society and um, we see that they need help. And uh, hopefully we're going to do a show at the, at the Grosvenor uh, Casino, which is in uh, just near Gloucester Road in Harrington Gardens, where we were yesterday. And hopefully we're going to 
do a, a, a show for black cab drivers alone, you know, because there's there's a few cab drivers out there at the moment that, that are very good ex-pros. I mentioned yeah. one yesterday, Mickey Hazard, who played uh, in that very, very good Tottenham side with Aussie Ardealers and Glenn Hoddle. And, and I used to watch, I watched that team when I come back from Seattle a few years back and they, they were outstanding side. My mate Paul Miller played for them. Uh, one of our old Stoke players, Garth Crooks, was up front for them. Um, but Mickey Hazard was an outstanding player. And the last time I played against Mickey was in a when I went back to Chelsea and he was playing for Spurs reserves and I was playing for Chelsea reserves. And I couldn't believe that he was on the field because he was so outstanding in that Tottenham team. And the next thing, he, I remember him taking a throw in near the corner flag and I ran towards him. I've never met him, never spoke to him. And, and all I can just remember is he put the ball behind his head to take the throw and he just said to me, now I know how you feel. And because he was absolutely deflated and, and that's what we did to, uh, I mean, he was a terrific midfield player. He was, it was a, it was a, and he, as I say, he's a cab driver and, I, I, you know, we'd like to get him down there and do, do get him involved with the show because he, he was an exceptional player. They'd have a decent uh, football team as well, wouldn't they? The London Black Cabs and the cab trade very close to my heart because I was a Birmingham Black Cab driver for 13 years in the second city. Uh, all right, okay, mm. okay, yeah, yeah. They uh, it just goes to show how much change, uh, how much how change is taken over and not for the better. Yeah, uh, it's terrible. You know, I, I know in Stoke, you know, they they got a couple of cab firms there, and you know, you wouldn't go near them. It's um, Life has changed, um, and as I say, it's just not for the better. But you know, you got to be careful what cabs you get in today. And uh, I know, I know, in Stoke on Trent, you know, a couple of friends of mine got in a lot of trouble in taxis for these mini cabs. And yeah. I mean, really, you know, plus the fact, you know, the cab drivers, you, 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 you know, they take them sometimes two, three years to do the knowledge. So, yeah. you know, it's um, it's an incredible thing, incredible way of life. If you have to do that, you know, you go all that time without really earning any money, and then all of a sudden your world collapses around you, and it's it's not it's not laughable. It's uh, the government uh, have got a lot to answer for. Absolutely. I'd say my proudest achievement ever in my life was getting my Birmingham badge and being a Birmingham black cab driver. Well, let's go back yeah. to 1967 because this is the thread and we've got six fantastic songs to uh, to play out with some wonderful stories. And we had two great uh, cup finals that year, one involving Queen's Park Rangers being the first third division club to win the League Cup. And in the FA Cup, it was a Tottenham versus Chelsea affair, wasn't it? Or certainly the semi-final was. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a, you're right. A 67 was, um, that was a final that nearly never happened. Um Chelsea and Tottenham, because Chelsea, there was a big dispute over cup final tickets, and there would have that that was Chelsea. I mean, I was at the game. I was at the game with my brother, and I was only fifteen mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> at that time. I was just signed apprentice, and um, I, I just I, well, I was about a year into my apprenticeship, and uh, I didn't find out till later on that the, the Chelsea players were in a hotel in Bournemouth till about four o'clock in the morning on that Saturday morning, the FA Cup final, and they weren't playing. Yeah. Uh, and I might have actually made my debut as a 15-year-old because that's how many players they had. 
that they was been so short of players that me and my brother might have had to play. So they, you know, because um, they refused to play because they're in those days, you know, it always makes me laugh when you see players in them days after they've got through the semi-final, they're all jumping and singing and dancing and all that. That I wasn't so much getting to Wembley. It was because it was a big payday. It was a, we used to they used to get a hundred tickets compliment uh, well hundred tickets to buy and they get me in one hand and they go out to the other hand to the to either Stan Flashman or whoever else wanted to buy them. So that was that was a big payday for footballers in them days and that was why Chelsea held out that morning and they weren't going to play. And and then at the thirteenth hour they said sort of given the tickets. So I don't know where they got the tickets from. But uh, that that would have been quite some final had they refused to play. And when I said that, it was a little bit of a joviality because in the semi-final at Villa Park, I believe another game that he was at, Leeds United had two goals disallowed and the second goal by Peter Lorimer for uh, encroachment from a Chelsea player. And then almost after that, the whistle blew and Chelsea were at Wembley. But that day at Villa Park was quite bizarre in 1967 as well, wasn't it? Well, I, I remember that for two reasons. One, I was, I was in line with Peter Lorimer when he smashed that ball in the last kick of the game. And I remember... I remember it hitting the net and coming back out. And as it was coming back out, Peter Bonetti started to dive. Yeah. He hit it that hard. I've never seen a ball hit so hard. And uh, and it was also a time when um, they brought in the rule that, uh, you know, protecting goalkeepers. And, uh, and my, one of my great friends, Johnny Boyle, was playing. And um, I remember he, he was running through on, onto a through ball and, Gary's break come out and as he came through I remember going in after the round to see after the game and Johnny Ball come out with six stub marks on the right side of his face where Gary's break had you know put his boot into his face so that was the way Leeds handled that kind of stuff Uh, once again you know uh, referees making or the FA making terrible mistakes you know it could have took I mean can you imagine that you know if if, if he'd have got him in the eye he could have took his eye out but um, that was the way Leeds played the game but that was yeah yeah the the, the Gary Sprague so it was quite fitting really that um, when when they actually got to the final against us in, in 1970 that Gary kindly let one under his body for a a shot from Peter Houseman that I think my my grandmother would have saved. Yeah. It was like that, wasn't it? At times, Gary. Yeah, Spike. yeah, yeah. He turned his manager a whiter shade of pale on a few occasions, <laughs> which leads us to our first record today: Procol Harum's classic and number one. And was number one on your sixteenth birthday, by the way? Do you know what Procol Harum means? No, I don't. I don't. I've never. It's one of those things that you've got me out. You've caught me out on it. It's one of those things that I, I would usually look up. I've got you back for uh, Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Far from these things, it means Procol Harum. Procol Harum is, is Latin for far from these things. So what's the story behind this wonderful song that that was 
a little bit of truth, like all songs will do, a little bit of truth, and a little bit like with the line about the miller telling the tale, that was a, 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 a figment of imagination, but put together in a concise way that confused everybody. So what's the story behind that track? Well, I, I just I just think it was, uh, like most of the songs that we, we pick out or I pick out, it's... Yeah. Um, it it was a sign of the, it was a sign of the times. It was just so different from any other songs that were made. I mean, that was a time of the um, you know the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the Searchers, and you know um, the Hollies, whoever. Then then Graham Nash went, the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So this was one right out the blue, wasn't it? it was a, this was one pull right out the top drawer. And uh, it was as classy a song as ever been made. And I, I think that, you know, when I look through the, the music of those days, it's got to be one of the greatest songs recorded. Uh, you know, Skip a Life and Dangle. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of song I, I, I think I might have, been, have written, you know, but I just, as we spoke about before, just didn't have the ability to put the music to it. <laughs> that you and the rest of your Chelsea boys wouldn't have minded being in that place that, that the the songwriter was writing about for the whiter shade of pale. It looked quite a bit of a party that was going on with ceilings being removed and everything else. And I think quite a bit of alcohol was taken and probably other things as well. Well, they might have got a game in our team then, mightn't they? Yeah. Uh, our Chelsea team there. Yeah, I mean, those were the days. Those were the, da- those were the days when... Uh... Uh, that was all all happening at that yeah. time. I remember the, the, the Elton John. I've read the Elton John book a couple of times, and some of the stories in there, what they were getting up to, and the John Lennon days, and that you know everything everything went in those days. It was a fan, fantastic days. Of uh, I'm not saying that I'm I'm one for drugs and all that, but you know marijuana never really killed anybody. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, but no, it's, it was, I mean, without without the drugs, there wouldn't have been songs like that, would there? You know, there would have been, you know, the 
I played a song the other day, A Day in the Life by uh, the Beatles, and it, it's a fantastic song. About, it's And uh, the LSD, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and stuff like that, you know, it's, it's all about uh, smoking weed or whatever. There's nothing right. In today's society, I mean, that is nothing today with what goes on. Uh, in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. But in those days, Al, you're right. I mean, we've, we've come off the back of... of pretty much really the Second World War, haven't we? And then the 50s. We've entered that new decade of the 60s. And by the time 66, 67, and England obviously won the World Cup and, and all the rest of it, it was the swinging 60s. And the epicentre, I'm guessing, was the King's Road and Chelsea. Well, I, I think it's funny you should mention England winning the World Cup because in in, in those days in the King's Road, I don't think anybody realised they did there was so much going on. It was a, it was an incredible time, just an incredible. I I remember going down there, just walking down there on a, a lovely summer's evening, about half past five, six o'clock, and you know you'd see see him come along, ringing the bells, Harry Krishna, and all this, and then they added you know the, all the riots and mods and the rockers and all this, you know, not that I was one for that, but. Um, you know, we'll go into another song in a minute called San Francisco. It's, um, you know, the flower power. It, it was, they were the, they were the most incredible. It was like, I've watched, a, I've watched a couple of movies recently about a, a kid with a fairy tale, fairy tale book. And he, he, he goes, he lives his life like a fairy tale. And that's what it was in them days. It was like, a, it was like a fairy tale. You couldn't believe what was going on around you. And as a young Young fifteen, six-year-old, you know, I, I suppose, you know, I although I became a footballer, I would just love to have been in their world, and uh, if I would have been born a musician instead, I mean, I, I would have, you know, plus the fact you've got your sell-by date, you know, I mean, when you look at the Rolling Stones today and they're still doing concerts, uh, he's, I mean, he's 145, Mick Jagger. And he's still doing concerts, so you know it, it was a, the, the music. Music is, you know, that we've said in all our shows. Uh, it's it's just without without music, there would be no be no movies. There'd be nothing. Would there be no life? And also, without football, there wouldn't be because we've always maintained this music and football go hand in glove, and that's very evident in your autobiography, The Working Man's Ballet. Alan Hudson confusing Chelsea fans since 1974. Is that a correct statement? Um, well, the working man, the working man. I mean, um, the working man ballet is a um, just a just an incredible title, isn't it? It's. I think that's what I remember when Jeff Powell, my friend on the Daily Mail, he's a top writer and, and one of the top in the world. It's just a fantastic writer, and when when he saw the title, he was blown away by it, and. Uh, that was what my manager called it, and that's yeah. that's the way he saw it. And he, Tony, Tony wasn't like me. I mean, I I could, you know, I wanted to be, you know, one of these, you know, people. Um, I'm, I'm just a great m- music lover. <clears throat> but Tony, Tony, Tony did love his Tony did love his music, but he was on a different age, uh, and that's how we see the game played. You know, we see the game played. It's like it's Swan Lake. He sees Swan Lake as a football match. He used to sit and watch football and think and and, and put music to it. It yeah. was just and and that was and the, the 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 photograph I have of me and George Best, you know, if you put that to music, it's in you know, clashing for the ball to music. It, it just about sums a title up. 
we're going to go back to confusion in a moment. But when you went to America and played for Seattle Sounders, you must have visited San Francisco and that Scott McKenzie song that does remind you of the Harry Krishnas and the Flower Power. What was it like when you actually went to San Francisco and through that song of Scott McKenzie's, did you have an idea of what San Francisco was going to be and did it differ from when you actually landed there? To tell you the truth, I, I was unfortunate that we never really spent too much time. That we we used, you know, it was like a blur. It yeah. was, you know, we, it was not like going on holiday. You you go into these places and play. It's like New York, I love. Just adored New York, and could, you know, it was one place I'd love to live. And uh, you know, you go there and you just be blown away by uh, at three, four o'clock in the morning the piano bars, you know, and you picture. Billy Joe, Joe L walking in and playing the piano, or Dalton could, you know, him being a, uh, a concert pianist as well. You know, the, these American bars are just leaving them light years behind. <clears throat> but I never really, I've been over the, the you know, the, the bridge there and uh, been in San Francisco, but I've never really, ta- it's like New Orleans. I'd love to spend time in New Orleans. I've never really been fortunate. They never had a football team at that time, so I never got there. But um, no, I mean the United States of America. These these town cities and they're like towns, aren't they? You know, and uh, it's you know it it the music, New Orleans and everything else. You can just imagine it's a little bit different going to Fulham or, or Putney or something like that, or or to Stoke on Trent in New Orleans. It's just it just brings a new meaning to music. Confusion comes from confusing Chelsea fans because lots of Chelsea fans have always believed that you're a Chelsea boy and when they hear you or see you on the TV or the radio and are 
What? Why ain't he talking up Chelsea? Why ain't he? Oh, he's a Chelsea. No, Alan Hudson has never been a Chelsea fan. In fact, Stamford Bridge is probably one of the very few football grounds that you haven't paid to get into to watch the players at any time <laughs> of your career. The first team that you did go to, because your dad um, was a mad Fulham fan. You were living in Chelsea, but it was Fulham, wasn't he? And then you even... Well, you didn't know this because while, um, while you were... Or I was going away to Stratford last Saturday. I was on your Twitter account and I put up the picture of Stan Bowles and you and I put Stan and a QPR fan and that really threw and confused the Fulham supporters as well. So let's have a little bit of light on the confusion. Well, I don't, I, um, I, I'm a great believer. I, I fall out with people and I, I don't, I, I really don't understand. Uh, I was brought up in a time when People would go to, you know, the my elders would go to Chelsea, Stamford Bridge one week and go to Craven Cottage the next, and all the talking, the cafes on Monday when I was I was only tiny, you know, would be of them, you know, both the local teams, and that's the way I was brought up, and uh, I became a Fulham supporter because my father was born in Fulham, and he he didn't he he didn't for a minute ever encouraged me to be a he just said go and enjoy what you want to enjoy and I that's why I say to parents why why do you why do you brainwash your kids into being a, a supporter leave them alone let them make their own choice up of, of anything in life um, and let them go where they want and I, I ended up me and my little friend uh, as luck would have it uh, little Billy Boyce was the best cricketer and the best sprinter and I was the best footballer and the best long distance runner and he was a Jamaican and I loved my cricket and and I used to say to him, we're very fortunate, Bill, that we don't have to buy a scarf. And he would say, well, why is that? I said, well, we're black and white, aren't we? I said, we don't need a scarf. And he would laugh. You know, he said, you're, you're, you're crackers, you know. But, that, but that's the way we were. we were. We were the only black and white people in the ground, you know, two friends. And that's why I don't understand this racial thing and I never will. I never get to the bottom of it. But I, um, I kind of, Fell in love with Fulham. I love. I love the. I love the side of. I suppose that's why I become a player because they had so many bad players. I thought, well, if I can't make it in this game, I can't make it anywhere because they were. They were hopeless, you know. And I, what I loved about Fulham and our support, the supporters of that time, we never expected to win a game. So you know, there was never any pressure. There was never like unlike today. I'm sat with two Chelsea supporters last night screaming at the television, three 0 down, and I just can't understand how to get so excited. Um, because I think the game's all about it's for fun, all right. You'd want your team to win, but it's not the be all and end all, is it? It's, let's be fair about it. You know, it's a, it's an end. Footballs that people tend to forget. People's in it. Football's an entertainment, and you go to be entertained. And I think that's what ended, why I ended up in 1967 watching Queens Park Rangers go through that fantastic cup run. Through, I see every game right up to Wembley because I was following Fulham when Rodney Marsh was playing and uh, I, I loved him as a player at that time and then he moved to Queen's Park Rangers and I followed I followed him more than I did QPR yeah. but then but I loved the, I just loved Loftus Road and the way that and the, and the great team they had they had a couple of Fulham players they had a fellow called Jim Langley they also had the great um, um, fellow up front, um, one of the Allens, you know, one yeah, of Les the Allen. Allen, Les, Les Allen, Allen. yeah, it's uh, tremendous. He was in the, I think, Tottenham double winning team. Yeah, he was. Fant- fantastic old player. Uh, 
uh, that Bobby Keita, I knew Bobby from a kid uh, who was at Fulham. So they, 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 well, they pulled off the miracle in 1967. I was even up in Birmingham for the semi-final when they beat Birmingham 4-1, I think, in the second leg. And I travelled up with my, my, my dad on the, on the, you know, the supporters bus. So I was very much into that. I, even when I missed Wembley 67, I was there for the Chelsea final, but I weren't there for the League Cup final because I had to be at Stamford Bridge because that was our job as apprentices. We had to be at the home match. But I can remember staying outside the offices and I heard that they were 2-0 down and uh, and I listened to, you know, the, the final few minutes when they scored the winner outside the main office at Chelsea and every everybody thought I was happy because Chelsea had scored or something. Uh, uh, but it wasn't. I was. I was. It was. A, I was that day. That was day. Was fantastic, you know. But I. I'm, I would love to have been there on that day, especially being two 0 down and coming back to beat West Brom. And this is the thing with true football fans. You know, you might get bought up. I mean, I was bought up Birmingham City, but I don't class myself as a fan now. I like to watch football. I like to watch players. I go to games to watch players now, not to watch a football club. Well, you've proved that, haven't you? You're, yeah. but you're a Birmingham City man, yeah. and you're and you love Jack Grealish. Yeah. I mean, that that sums up uh, yeah. your philosophy, and I, I think that's the way it should be. Uh, if I see a great player, I couldn't, I don't give a monkey's who he plays for. Exactly. I think kids, our kids of that, kids who are brought, born with that kind of ability shouldn't be overlooked by uh, the biasness of managers or or anyone in our game. I had it throughout my life, and I hate to see it happening to other kids. He, the kid's worked hard to get where he's got. He's he's a fantastic. I think he's a fantastic uh, role model as well. He's he's been off the rails a couple of times. He's learned from it. Uh, his managers backed him. I think he deserves full credit. And um, and the kid is now showing what a great player he is in in a very very. Uh, uh, Choose my words. Average, I'd say. Average. Uh, yeah, if you want to call them average, average. Yeah, they're going to be in. They're going to be in with the uh, the also rounds this year. And it's. Uh, but trust me, I've I've been there. I I went back to Stoke when they were fourteen points adrift, yeah. and I was I was on my last legs in in the second time around. And I know what it's like to to walk. But a lot of these a lot of these top players. Uh, you know that we call him there. The, he's the greatest player, and he's the greatest player. Like Pep Guardiola at Manchester City, he's taken over three football clubs who have been the top clubs in Europe. I'd like to see him manage Stoke City or Port Vale or Tranmere Rovers. Um, and these players that have played nowhere outside of the top clubs. You know these players at Manchester United, uh, Liverpool years ago. You know the Liverpool players of years ago. They played in Championship winning team, European Cup winners team, and then they left Liverpool and they were never heard of again. Yeah. Um, and you know most players can look decent players in in teams like that. But this Jack Grealish, he's playing for a team, and he he has to he has to work his absolute nuts off to yeah. get anything. You know to get them to win football matches because they're he's on a different level. Mm. Uh, and you, anyone with any sense whatsoever has got to look at the boy and say, look, can you imagine him in a top team where he's going to be with really top class players and who are all on the same level as him? And that's the only way you can look at it. And But it seems that once again, we have an England manager that doesn't, who, who looks at the game very differently than we do and like those before him. 
they just don't want players of that that ability. Hundred percent. I think it, I've always said this and maintained this. It is an English disease, and I think it's echoed by certain uh, supporters as well because they they can't look above what they actually see. And I think you're right. If you took a Man City player and put him in the Villa team, and you put Jack and put Jack into the Man City team, you would see a massive difference in both. Well, absolutely. Players, Ab- and it don't take a genius to understand that. Sadly, lots of them aren't geniuses. A player that was genius and was your 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 ultimate hero, I'd guess, uh, Johnny Haynes. And there's a, a lovely story. Petula Clark leads us up to our next record, Don't Sleep in the Subway. I'm guessing Johnny didn't, but there is a Johnny Haynes reference to the song, isn't there? Well, it's, um, she was one of my favourite singers of all time. And uh, she used to live that just off the King's Road, uh, only about probably 200 yards from where I am now. And... Um, I know my mother, my mother gave me this information. She used to work in a little bistro in the King's Road when she could go out the house. And, um, and yeah, Johnny, Johnny Haynes used to date Petula Clark, which was very, very hush. I, I can imagine it today, you know, it would be all over the place today. You know, it would be probably the biggest news in the country, you know, Petula Clark. I mean, I've seen her work with Frank Sinatra and seen her on stage with you know, with clips of her and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and I mean, she was just a top, top singer. You know? time he was a real cream boy wasn't he took over from Dennis Compton and uh, he was John, John the first hundred pound a week player in the history of the game was uh, he was top top man and and I got to know him pretty well and sadly after my car accident he had his car accident but he never got through his he sadly died and uh, it was tragic uh, because I was just getting to, to know John very well and he come down for one of my functions from Edinburgh, put himself out to come down because I, and then I sent him a book that I wrote where Fulham going to find the next Johnny Haynes and he said you can't publish that because Chelsea Chelsea fans are uh, shoot you, you know you can't write that because he was such a modest man, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, a great great man who today would be. I don't think he would play in England today, John. Yeah, it was it probably epitomised that you know, pretty much like Jack. You know, he played for he played for a team who who were just he was on a different planet from them. Uh, and I, I suppose people in Southampton say like, like Matt Letizia was like that. You know, a big fish in a 
a small bowl. But uh, Johnny just jo- Johnny was just in love with the football club, and uh, the same with Jack is with his club. So you know we've we've got a, a like for like there. And also Tosh Chamberlain as well, because apparently the only reason Johnny signed because he's his best mate Tosh Chamberlain was playing for Fulham at the time. Well, they, yeah, they, they 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 had this this wonderful friendship, and uh, that was that was the one that was where the 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 joke came from, wasn't it? That that was where it all started with uh, Johnny Haynes and Tosh Chamberlain when when he went in and got his hundred pound a week, and um, it was all, all all over the press and all that, and. Uh, and Tosh went in to see him, and Johnny Ainge said, him, "No, I wouldn't go in." Tosh, he said, "Hey, you ain't going to get nowhere near like that. You, you know, you just stick as you are." And uh, he went in, and he says, "And I think it was Tommy Trinder who was who was in charge." And he said, "You know, he says he's getting hundred pound a week, in and uh, he says, well, he's getting hundred pound a week in 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 the summer, and he's getting seventy pound a week in the winter." He said, well, the, which is out of season." And uh, and he said, I'm getting 30, 30 pound a week and 15 pound a week out of season. And he said, well, he said, you're not as good as Johnny Ains, are you? He said, oh, well, I am out of season. <laughs> <laughs> and that was where that joke came from. So they kind of boosted that joke and put it into, into a different category. But that's where it came from. Tosh uh, went in claiming more money, but... Uh, you know, he he just you know he, I I I don't know what Tosh would have done without Johnny Haynes because Johnny Haynes used to put a ball with a lace just the right way for him. You know, he was one of well, probably arguably the best passer of ball that that England have ever seen, wasn't he? Johnny Haynes, the maestro. He, well, he was even more than that, Paul. Mm. He was even more. I remember the game when they beat Scotland nine three when uh, they they. They ripped them apart, and Johnny was a midfield player. I think Johnny scored two or three, and made three or four or whatever. He was just an outstanding, you know, in a, a team of Jimmy Greaves, and you know, they um, they were probably the two best players in that London could boast at that time. And good mates as well. And, and you're right. I think Johnny did go and live up there in Scotland, and Jimmy gave him a bit of grief, didn't he? Because there was there was always the needle between England and Scotland. I don't think Greaves would have gone and lived up there in in Jockland, would he? He always well, used to put the boot in there to the old Jockos, especially when he was with uh, Ian St John on that brilliant Saint and Greaves show. Well, I remember, I remember seeing a, a thing on television. He was in the back of a black cab. Uh, Jimmy Greaves and uh, and the, it, the Scottish lad was driving the cab and he was, he was on the phone to his mate saying I've got Jimmy Greaves in the back we love Jimmy Greaves you know what a player he was and, and Jimmy said don't give me all that he said I've been at Hamden Park and I've seen you like Wembley you don't love me you don't love any of us you know so there was, it was great banter between us all in the, well in the, them in them days and and it continued didn't it you know it was a, it was a, but that was what was fantastic about the game in those days because you know without the scottish uh howley wouldn't exist yeah we we had you know the best managers and all the best managers were scottish and and the best players were scottish so the, and the only one that didn't come down when he should have come down because Rangers and Celtic were so big at that time with Jim Baxter. If Jim Baxter would have come down when he was 21, 22, we would have seen another genius, you know. Sadly, he come down towards the end of his career and he come down to uh, Sunderland and then 
um, Nottingham Forest, and and he wasn't in the best of well, probably conditions no. and form, was he? he he's well, I, I see him behind him. I'd see him play at Fulham for Nottingham Forest, and it was a sad sight. Yeah, it yeah. was a sad sight, uh, and. Uh, it was it's something that always stuck in my mind when I went back to Stoke, and uh, although I, uh, you know, I wasn't, I got them out, I helped get them out of trouble, yeah. the relegation. But I, it was, I was always aware that, you know, when to hang my boots up, um, because people, you don't want to be remembered, uh, you know. And I, I can remember going to the Queens Park Rangers when I nearly signed for them when I left Chelsea, and. I was at the game that George Best come back and uh, he played and he played on the wing and George was in a uh, he was in a mess and mm. he shouldn't you shouldn't you don't want to remember George and things like that so that's why he went to America and stayed there. A question that was uh, posed out on your official uh, Twitter site, Alan Hudson underscore ten, was from Jack Hall, and uh, I could answer lots of these people, but I don't because I help you on your Twitter account. So this is from Jack, and, and I know the answer. Which, if any, of the classic lead side of the seventies did you like, stroke, admire? Thanks, Jack, for the question. By the way. <laughs> well, I didn't admire any of them to tell you the truth. I I, I think they were they, they were led by a man that um, kind of I I don't know the right word. I I I can only put it in a category like when you see the war films and you see Hitler, yeah. you know, and you you see that happen and uh, how how he would have his people and the, the terrible atrocities in the war and all that. How, how to lead a football team? You can't, you, you, you know. And Don Revy said it when we walked out to play the Germans. You don't forget what, you know. You please don't, you know, forget what they done to our, to our fish shops and our, you know, in the war, you know. And it just really turned me, mm. turned me over, really. And you know, we, we're walking out to play a game of football. And I, I think when you, when you have to stoop that low. Uh, in a professional sport, I, it shouldn't be allowed, and he shouldn't have been allowed to be the, the England manager. But uh, you know, uh, I, I must say that uh, to to answer Jack's question, I love, I just loved playing against Bremner and Giles because they were the, they were the apart from playing against Alan Ball and Tony Curry, they were my, they were the biggest tests that a player could face. And uh, you knew you had to be your very best when you played against them. They were two terrific players. The silent assassins, you know, they're both very small. They both could leave their foot in where Dom wanted them to leave it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But both terrifically talented players. And and I think that was why Johnny Giles had to leave Manchester United because he was there in the early days. And I remember my old mate, Eddie McCready, give him a scissor kick one day at the bridge and they carried him off on a stretcher which was if I'd have known Johnny then like I knew him later on I would have applauded Eddie even more mm. but that was that was that was like a Leeds player the other way round uh, but he, he they went on they were they, they weren't they weren't nice they weren't they were they were great I loved I loved playing against Leeds you know but that that was that was a the pinnacle to when when you beat Leeds, it was um, it was a you know you could really enjoy your beer on a Saturday night. But, no doubt about that. but I'm guessing um, you didn't like you didn't admire, but I'm guessing you respected them because they were a great bunch of football players, wasn't they? That played in in a certain way 
Would that be fair, or did you not? Well, no, in the, in, individually, I mean, I, I didn't like them. Indiv- uh, Alan Clark came to Fulham when I was a Fulham supporter, and I didn't, yeah. I didn't particularly like him. I didn't like his attitude. Yeah. Um, I got to know uh, Peter Lorimer when he was in Vancouver, and I was in Seattle. He was a nice man. Mm. Um, I don't didn't really didn't really know, but I've, I've actually got in touch with a couple of Leeds players to do a show with them, and I've never got a reply because yeah. I'd love to sit down and do a show, you know, a one on one show with you know people like Eddie Gray and all that who who played in the final in 1970. Um, but, you know, they had, I was a great fan of, I thought Terry Cooper on his day was one of the best fullbacks in the world. Mm. He was he was a little bit different because he was a good, he was a terrific footballer. Um, Centre-halves, I didn't, I didn't really, I thought they were a little bit overrated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for someone so smart, he never really had a good goalkeeper. Yeah. Um, so all round, I think I, I suppose that's why they had to go to all lengths to win football matches. And I've spoke to referees, one in particular, Gallagher, who um, who told me one night he just hated refereeing their matches because they they would try everything and any anything and everything to, you know, get a decision. And that's not, I'm not a great, I'm not one for this great sporting thing and everything else. I think you. We all want to win, but you know, you, you don't have to. You don't have to go to them. You know, if you're second best, you're second best. Absolutely. Um, another point-sized genius, uh, David Jones, leading us into your next uh, choice, the monkeys. I'm a still believe. I'm a believer. Are you? Yeah. Are you still, Huddy? What's the story behind David well, Jones a... in a pub in Fulham? <laughs> Well, it was quite it was quite a surprise. Uh, one day I walked into this pub with uh, my mate Tommy Baldwin, uh, the sponge used to drink in there, and I went in there with my mate, and Davy Jones is in there with a can of Fosters on the pool table, and it's just my cup of tea, really. I do like a game of pool when I've had a few. I've been out all day, and he. Well, anyway, we become quite friendly, and. Um, Time went on, and I, you know, I would go in there on my way home and have a have a drink with Davey. He would he actually lived up and stayed up in stairs up, upstairs in this pub, mm-hmm. and um, I remember um, going to Stoke, and we, I was in Stoke one night and telling the lads a story. I said, "Me and David Jones." I said, oh, "I know David," and then lo and behold, uh, the monkeys come and done a show in Stoke at the the old Vic or something. And uh, I said to my mate in, who had the restaurant, I said, "Look, uh, we'll book a box. We'll all we'll all go, and you get all the booze and you know the champagne and all that, and we'll all stick a few quid in, and we'll, we'll have a we'll have a box there." And I, I said, "I'll take you in the dressing room to meet uh, meet the monkeys before I, I'd ever only ever met David." Yeah. This was only a couple of years after three three four years after, and we were we were quite pally and. Uh, I got to the door with a couple of two or three of the boys and uh, and a fella come to the door and he said, what do you want? And I told him who I was. I said, I don't want to speak to David. I want to just say hello and invite him up for a glass of champagne after. Anyway, he said that he called David and he said, I've never heard of him, he said. 
So, uh, so I, I had to go back in the box and take all the stick off the lads and said, "You've been lying to us all this time." <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't, they don't give you no, no second chance. And I, so I had to, I had to take it on the chin. Anyway, uh, about six months later, I, I went down to play a game in Brighton, and I was with my then girlfriend Laurel and uh, and our boy Adam, uh, and. I took him to the game with me and I was standing there having a drink for the game and uh, it was a Sunday and little Davey walked in. So I didn't, I, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of blanked him, you know, and uh, we went out to play and we were playing for about a quarter of an hour and he was playing on the right wing, running up and down like little, little people do. And, um, and I said to our left back, well, can you do me a favour? And he, I said, what's that? I said, well, next time he gets it, get smashing you know so he this fella davy got the ball and he he knocked about 10 yards ahead of him and he he worked he, he run can you imagine can't you i'm a believer and he chased it and this fella's hit him and he not ain't only hit him he's followed through with his knee and he's got him right across the nose he's smashed all his face in so um he's laying on the floor and i'm, I'm standing over him and the left back, I've got my arm around the left back as much as say that I, I, they were his orders from me. And he looked up at me, Dave, Davey Jones, and I, and I said, do you remember me now? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and he did. Oh, I suppose he was only seeing stars at that time, but it was, and I weren't one of them. Coming after the game and all his face was done up and all all plastered up and all that, and I thought, serves you right. And, I, and that was a day, those were the days when we didn't have the mobile phones to take a nice photograph of him. Otherwise, I'd have put it all over Facebook and said, this is from me to David, you know. Now, I'm guessing he wasn't playing on the right wing for Brighton and Ove Albion. I'm guessing it was a charity game. It was a charity game, yeah, yeah. It was a charity game. I don't think I don't think David got a game, you know. No, he got a game, and it's a. I suppose if the the planet of the apes, he might have got a game, but he was only a monkey, wasn't he? But um, I don't know. That's it. I was. I mean, that was that was that was the best tackle I've ever seen in my life, you know. But just for him 
doing what he done to me. I mean, you just can't do things. I, I took yeah. so much grief over that, and uh, and I never got a photograph out of it. So, and I, I'd have, I'd have, I'd have plastered it all over to put it in every pub in London. Well, a shame. I'll look on the internet and see if anybody had taken uh, a photograph of a broken monkey. <laughs> yeah, poor broken down monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Stevie Wonder, there was no love lost there between you and Davey, but there was a lot of love between you and Maureen and the song by Little Stevie, I Was Made to Love Us. So what's the story behind the uh, this track, or do? Well, that, the, the, I'm writing a new book at the moment. It was, uh, it, it really, it reminds me of my, uh, we had a lot of trouble at home, me and Maureen, when um, I left home over uh, my My family weren't too pleased with our relationship and uh, at the end of the day my, I fell out with my parents which was very very rare mm. and it, it, it was uh, left a bad taste with me for ages and uh, and my father said to me if you if, if you love her that much marry her and that's what happens and that's how my that's how my marriage came about and when I look at that song or hear that song it was it kind of brings it all back I was made to love her I mean I did love her but it's it the way Stevie sung, sings it as if he's singing it just for me you know yeah. uh, but I'm a great great I'm a fantastic big big huge Stevie Wonder fan I mean he's he can't do nothing wrong in my eyes you know Because she was a bunny girl, wasn't she? She was a bunny girl. That was that was a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a problem that, that my parents didn't like. And you know, I think my, my because my you know where where I'd come from and um, my career was just kind of taking off. Uh, it was the first season, you know, um, when we got to the cup final. But I was I was I, I really I, I hadn't got to the top by a long chalk, but we were we were doing well in the FA Cup, and all of a sudden. I meet this girl in the King's Road and she's going to be a bunny girl. And they thought, you know, they've read so many things in newspapers about, you know, the front page of the news of the world and all this and about bunny girls. And then it caused havoc. 
So, yeah, I met her in a, a little pub. I met her in the pub where, funnily enough, I was supposed to meet Dusty Springfield when she didn't turn up. So it was a bit of a nightmare pub for me in the end. What you was know. the name of that pub? Well, they used to call it the Bird's Nest, but it was called the Six Bells. In the, and it, they, they, later on, it changed. It's the, it's the Ivy Restaurant now in the King's Road, uh, which is the top restaurant in London, in the West End. And... Um, and it it later became Henry J. Beams, which was one of George Best. George Best was a Feeney Arms, his local, but he that was some uh, just on the on the corner where George lived, and he he would use that place. So it's got very, he's got incredible history, but uh, like everything else here in Chelsea, the, all the pubs are gone. Things have changed uh, since 1967, and, and I'm guessing probably that epicentre, the King's Road, has changed so much more than, than any other road in this country, and oh. for the better. Oh, it's... Uh, it's I, 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 we, came, we came out of the casino last night and we waited on the corner for a cab, and we did... We, I said, well, don't phone, don't call a cab yet, a black cab, because we don't know where we're going. There was nowhere to go. We didn't really know where to go, so we just walked around the corner and was in a place called Gloucester Road, and we went in a pub called the Gloucester, and we sat there, and it was we we were just dumb, you know, we were we we just couldn't believe that we could, there was no pubs to go to. It couldn't have happened years ago. You you wouldn't know where to go years ago because there were so many of them, and they were so such good pubs and all good pubs. But no, the King's Road today is just, uh, it's its like uh, that program, the, the Invaders, you know, it's like, it's, it's like there's nobody about or there's no, there's no pubs, there's no, there's no life. And there's certainly no Harry Krishna or Flower Power, you know, the days are long gone. It's, it's, it, 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 for me, it's, it breaks my heart really because, you know, we got young youngsters coming through now, and they they really don't know what it was like in them days. Mm. It was it was just so it was inspiring, you know. And again, at ten o'clock now, the pubs are closing, and the kids aren't going to go home. And pretty much like you guys last night, you you know you we have lives to live. We want to go to pubs. We want to socialise. We want to have a drink. We don't want to go home and just go to bed and go to sleep at ten o'clock. Well, it's it's just from day one. I said it from day one in March. I said from day one they're just they're they're making no sense about this, uh, <clears throat> and it still proves that we've got an invisible enemy. They're making plans. They were making plans then, and they're making plans now when they shouldn't. You can't make any plans if you don't know what the illness mm-hmm. is, and they just keep making plans. Um, and there's nothing worse in your, in my whole life than a broken promise. They're promising to do this, promising, and they never live up to it. I think politicians in this country should be put up against a the wall. They've caused so much disarray, and what they've done to people, people in homes, the lives they've cost, I think that it's just, you know, they're so blasé about it. That's what I don't like about them. You know, they've got, they've got a good life. They've got a good life, and <clears throat> they don't care about what happens on the underground. They don't care what happens on buses because they don't use them. Um, and uh, they they just continue to and make these rules and these and they that, I think that I can see anarchy. There's there's yeah. going to be a lot of trouble. They're going to cause a lot of trouble. And uh, you know it's it's a it's a much much the same as this football thing with down on one knee. You know it's yeah. it's just going to cause so much trouble mm. in this country. Uh, it's going to cause so much unnecessary. Yeah. 
travel because there wasn't any travel. Well, this is it. They try and invent this ball of confusion, if you like. And by the way, guys, that isn't on the playlist, but that's yeah, what they tried yeah. to do. And that's what happened? Temptations, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Another classic <laughs> song, perhaps next month. <laughs> but, but, you know, when you just see it, it's like a token gesture. I mean, Les Ferdinand came out with it and said um, uh, last week uh, with QPR, didn't take the knee. It's just getting ridiculous. It's not down to players and what they want now. It's as though everybody's told, everybody has to do that. And when you're told to do something, when it's a must that you have to do that, it takes away everything. And and, and I think that once we're once we're just told what to think, what to say, what to do, we just end up being robots. And I think pretty much that full circle uh, well, is what football is about today robotic football at the end of the day Paul players have every right to refuse to do it because it isn't do. in it isn't in their contracts yeah uh, you can't be told by these people what you got to do what you haven't got to do mm. you are footballers are contracted to play football yeah. And that's why I don't like footballers that start mouthing it off in the paper and doing that. If there's one thing I would do with footballers, if, if, I, if I was a manager, I'd stop them talking to the media mm. and, and coming out with stupid things. They're paid, they're paid to let their feet do the talking. Yeah. They get paid big money to put in big performances, which they don't do. Um, we see it again last night. Chelsea were in disarray, 3-0 down, and the, you've got players on the field earning... 200 250 grand a week mm-hmm. and you think well what's going on here yeah. you know what what actually is going on you know they're they're all you know they, it, it seems that they're getting paid so much money and yes football becomes secondary yeah you know the the mistake that silver made last night all right it can happen to anybody yeah. but I, I you know you i've seen him playing the champions league final four or five weeks ago and my god if that that have happened in the Champions League final, it was there would have been chaos, you know. He would have got shot. Yeah. If he'd have been Colombian, yeah, <laughs> he would have got, he'd have got, he'd have got a bullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, there we, all our players, even all the good that he's doing, young Rashford for for schools and all that, he shouldn't be doing that on his own. He shouldn't be allowed to do that. He should make a point. And if if the if the country can do it, do it. But that's not his job to do that. If I was his manager, I'd say concentrate on playing football. Absolutely. You're not you're not you're not paid to for sort out the school dinners for the kids. Um, you're contracted to play for Manchester United and give everything to Manchester United. You know, it would this wouldn't happen under Ferguson. No. No, different times, different uh, ideals, and and where we're going, we don't know. But we are gonna go now Woody and we're gonna we're gonna leave you all with uh, the Beatles all you need is love and blimey don't we need it and ironically Woody full circle again here it was the eighth number one of 1967 and number eight was your Chelsea number pretty much wasn't it um was it really yeah yeah well, Uch had number ten, didn't he? And largely, you had the number number eight shirt at Chelsea, and then you had the number ten. Oh, shirt sorry, I thought you meant blue. I thought you, I thought you meant blue is the colour. Was uh, <laughs> no. 
<laughs> that come a few years later. Yeah, right? yeah. That, did, yeah. that was ninety. That was two years later. Yeah, uh, but no, that was ninety seven. Seventy two. When I when uh, Ozzy yeah. kicked you out of the recording studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he would do, wouldn't he? Because he thinks he thought he was like Michael Bublé at the time. But um, yeah, it was. Um, I, I was always between eight and ten, so I mean, ten is my real number. But yeah. I, I played in the early days. I was number eight. I was, I was happy, and I said to Jimmy Greaves one night, um, I, I, I wore your shirt, and he was sitting. Funny enough, he was sitting next to Johnny Haynes, and I said, I wore your shirt, number ten, but I didn't really want to wear it in, the, not in England, England white, but Fulham white, and. Yeah. They, and and they laughed, but um, yeah, they were the two numbers. But no, number ten is my number because all, all, apart from Johan Cruyff, all, all the best players wore number ten. Absolutely, he, he took it to a different level, didn't he? Fourteen. Yeah, and as you put on your email, an everlasting great by the chaps. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it was. Um, yeah, I mean, who would have known what kind of music they would have been making? Had they not broken up when they broke up? I mean, they led the way. They led the way. They led mu- took music into a different uh, sphere, didn't they? Yeah. And uh, Lennon McCartney. Uh, I was a great lover of McCartney in the early days, but he, he kind of turned me off him. And the Lennon thing, uh, what he did was, well, it got, it got him killed in the end, didn't it? Yeah. He took on the president of the United States and, and, and they got him shot. They tried to deport him. Uh, because of trying to keep peace in America, but it was, that is something that can never happen. And uh, obviously, it was his song, All You Need Is Love. I remember first seeing it on Top of the Pops when they had the recordio. They did it live in the recording studio, and uh, and I was all sitting around their flower power shirts and all that. And it, it was a, it was a song of that time, wasn't it? All You Need Is Love, and that was that just sums up John Lennon. Everything yeah. everything he did, every did he, everything he did was you know of it. Outstanding, incredible. And 1967 was the year of love. So love to you and yours, Udi. Been a wonderful trip down memory lane and those were the days, my friend. Yes, yes. We still say they never end, but um, what we want to end is this virus so we can get back on track. And uh, um, if only love could sort that out. But, um, you know, we're just trying our best and it's caused a lot of confusion. But... At least we can have a little bit of fun in between times, mate. Of course we can. So yeah. till next time, uh, think of another six songs for another trip down memory lane because it will be part 13 of uh, My Life, My Music next month. Uh, just as long as it ain't unlucky, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, round about this time, Chris's birthday, there's a pla- there's an asteroid the size of a bus that narrowly misses Earth. So let's hope that it ain't a month too late on the 13th. <laughs> Well, we need something. We need an asteroid <laughs> or something to get to kill this virus, don't we? Oh, we certainly need something. You couldn't make it up, are Cheers, pal. Yeah. Speak to you. That's Nothing you can sing that can't be sung 
Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make but can't be made. No one you can save but can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time.